My name is Anson Hanbury. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church. And one of the things that we value most as a church is something that we call a spiritual check-in. Hello, my name is William, and I completed the spiritual check-in. It was very helpful for me to spend time reflecting on things that were going well, but also opportunities to dig deeper in my walk with God. It was such a gift to take some time to reflect on where God has taken me through my life, through good and bad, and how he's always provided, and that enables me to have a stronger faith for what is to come. Hi, my name's Jeff King, and I did a spiritual check-in. It was a great opportunity to meet and discuss where I am in my faith with another man at the church, and also get some feedback and some things to think about. It was really, it was really a great experience for me. I learned uh, how my walk with God has been going and where it's headed to keep me on track. It was a great time of self-discovery, uh, great questions, a lot of listening, and uh, we really feel like it was helpful. It was great to just sit down with someone for about an hour and kind of talk through what's going well in my faith and, and where I could use some help in drawing closer to God. Hi, I'm Kristen Griffith, and I want to talk about giving spiritual check-ins for others. It's uh, such a special thing to have someone just come alongside you and truly listen. Um, and so I'm so blessed to, to have been given some tools to be able to offer that to others. When you listen to someone, it's such an amazing gift. Um, it's as close to most people ever feel um, to being truly loved, and so it's, um, it's a blessing to be able to offer it, and I'm so glad that I, I can do that for others. A spiritual check-in is a one-hour, safe, confidential conversation with a mature Christ follower to help you think about where you are in your relationship with God and how you might be able to take steps to draw closer with Him. It's our mission to help people discover life with God, and we think these conversations are a huge part of that. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church and welcome to those joining us upstairs and at Crossroads in Highland Park. So if you've not had a spiritual check-in, I, I, I hope you do. It's, uh, it's sort of self-explanatory uh, in one sense, and that video I think helps unpack it as well. Many of you have made a decision to follow Christ, but perhaps stalled after that. You're not seeing things happen. You sort of an opportunity to talk confidentially with somebody about what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life, what you've done, what you're thinking, to learn about opportunities at the church maybe that are specifically tailored for you. But it's not about the church so much as it's about you and sort of um, yeah, being listened to and processing some of that. How do I take a step closer to God. So that is, that is what's driving this whole service in one sense. This is the eighth message in our series on Galatians. Galatians is a letter written by Paul. We believe it's probably the first letter, the oldest letter that makes it into the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas had planted a church in what's now northern Turkey. Uh, after they have moved on, some other people moved in behind them and they brought a different message. And Paul is pretty mad about that because it's not a secondary or tertiary issue. It's the, it's the heart of the gospel. How are we made right? How are we reconciled to God? How do we get forgiveness of sins and gain eternal life? How does that happen? And, and the gospel, the message, sort of the center of the Bible is that God sends his son to die in our place, to substitute himself for us, that God does everything that needs to be done. And so I captured that by saying faith equals 
Salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God. Faith equals salvation plus good works. Right? If we have a relationship with God, the Spirit of God comes to fill us and indwell us as we get transformed, sanctified over time, then we start to love and care for other people. Even more than that, when we understand that we are loved, when we understand that we don't have to do anything, when we understand that God has done everything that needs to be done for us, when we understand the, the, the radical nature of, of the good news, from that platform, then we don't have to uh, get our way, right? We can go to the end of the line. We can love other people. We can be patient. We can, we can serve because this is what I've got. Good grief. I'm good. I can, ca- I can care for other people. And so good works come out of an understanding of who we are in a relationship with God. So faith equals salvation plus good works. But this group that's come in, it's, it's a religious group of, of uh, Jews, and they're saying, look, it's not what Paul said. It's not faith equals salvation plus good works. It's faith plus good works equals salvation. You need to believe and you need to behave. You need to do all these things. You need to, you need to take these steps in order for God to love you. And Paul says, that's not a small change. That's a huge change, and that negates everything. And so this is an angry letter, and it's a dense letter. Paul makes complicated arguments. We've looked at the gospel. We've looked at motivation. We've talked about truth. We've talked about the law. We've talked about faith. Next week, it's freedom, because Galatians 5.1, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Everybody today wants to be free. But almost nobody understands what freedom actually is and how we get it. Uh, So that's next week. This week, it's about the Trinity. And in particular, it's about how we move closer to God, who is one God in three persons, or three persons in one God. And I am aware, sure, those of you who may also be aware, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. And uh, it sounds like bad math, right? You know, one equals three. No, it doesn't really. One equals one, and three equals three, but one doesn't equal three. And so in uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, the queen says to Alice, you should believe three, no, excuse me, you should believe six impossible things every morning before breakfast. And uh, some people think, wow, Christians are, you know, down to five. They've, they've got one impossible thing, this uh, one, in, one equals three. So I am aware that there are challenges, and some of you are confused, and some of you are traumatized, and, and you're maybe aware that uh, Jews say we don't, we're not monotheists, Christians are not monotheists, we're polytheists, Muslims say the same things, they, they don't believe in one God, they believe in three gods. So <clears throat> I'm aware of all that, but here's the deal, this is how God has revealed himself to us. In the Old Testament, it's clear that there is one God, right? That's, that's the first commandment. That's the Shema, the creed that the Jews say over and over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Jews were considered by many people in the ancient world to be atheists because everybody else, the Romans, the Greeks, everybody else believed in all kinds of gods. And the Jews said, no, 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 we don't believe in any of those gods. They, they only believed in one God. There is one God. There is one God, and he is in heaven. And they said, 
And this guy is God. <laughs> this guy that's standing next to us. And, and they didn't try and articulate how this was working out. They, just, they started to use the, the attributes of God to describe Jesus. And they started to, to use the Old Testament passages that were referencing God to describe Jesus. And they began to worship Jesus as God. And then when people were wanting to become Christ followers, they said, okay, well then you need to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There was this Trinitarian formation. So we've got a baptism coming up. Some of you need to step up and get baptized. If you are baptized, you will be asked. Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you say yes, we say you are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And so this doesn't get, um, it doesn't get finely articulated. It's just an understanding that emerges out of Scripture. And I don't talk about the Trinity perhaps as much as I should. I will occasionally, once a year or so, repeat this prayer that I say many mornings. We handed out a bookmarker today that's got this prayer. It's a prayer that I got from from John Stott, and uh, and it it is I think delightfully trinitarian. And I need to I want to push you to think more in a trinitarian fashion. I don't do it enough. We're doing it today for starters because our goal is to know God, right? Not not to know about God, but to know God. I I, I think that's what on many mornings brings you here. Right? I need <laughs> I need God. I need hope. I need I need to be recharged. I need to be reminded. I need to be realigned. I need a deeper experience of a God who loves me. I need to hear about God's grace. I need to know God. And in Jeremiah 9 we're told let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Let he who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows God. And so we want to know God. And this is who God is. Right? So the first reason we're looking at the Trinity is because we want to know the God who is. And this is who he is. So the most important thing about us is what we think about God. Some of you, your God is money. Some of you, your God is pleasure. Some of you, your God is power. Some of you, your God is success. Whatever We've all got a God. People who say they don't believe in God have got a God. Something is first place in their life. And part of the goal here is to get our hearts and our lives to align around the God who is. And the God who is is one God in three persons. So part of the reason we're doing this is because this is who God is. Part of the reason we're doing this is because uh, the Trinity brilliantly sets up communion. Because it's only with the triune God, that we have a God who can give us the gospel. <laughs> it's only when we have a God who is one God in three persons that we have a God who can be both just and justifier, who can be merciful and mighty, who can be, who can be loving and holy, perfectly loving and perfectly holy. And so uh, this leads us to communion. Part of the reason we're doing this is because I, I hear... Um, I hear a lot of non-Trinitarian language. 
Not anti-Trinitarian language. I just hear a lot of non-Trinitarian language. And part of the reason that we're doing this today, I'm focusing on the Trinity, is because it's central to the message of Galatians, and it gets referenced in chapter 4. So the argument actually starts back in chapter 3, verse 15, but in verse 6 of chapter 4, which I'm going to read, we get a Trinitarian reminder. So Paul writing says, uh, because you are Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then heir through God. So we get, we get reference to the, to God sending us the Son and, and mediating all this through the Spirit. We, we have a Trinitarian moment here. And so I want, uh, as we head into communion and, uh, and a big closing song that is, I think, wonderfully Trinitarian, um, I, I want to help you understand how this is unfolding. So let me start by uh, giving you a quick overview of the basics. So what, what we affirm, what the church affirms, is that there is one God, one essence, usia, if we're going to go with this, uh, there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are equal with one another. So the Father isn't greater than the Son or the Spirit. They are co-eternal. They are, they are, they are eternal God. God has always existed as one God in three persons. Secondly, this is a mystery. Okay, so it's, it's beyond us. Mystery in theological language doesn't mean uh, it's whodunit kind of thing. It is a, it's just beyond our capability to fully comprehend, which shouldn't surprise us. The nature of the eternal, all-powerful God is bigger than we can wrap our minds around. In the ancient world, they said, uh, finitum non capex infinity. Finitum non capex infinity. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. We just can't understand everything there is to understand about God, nor will we ever. That's not how it works. So God's nature and character is bigger than we can comprehend. So the Trinity remains a bit mysterious. doesn't mean we don't delve as deeply as we can. We do. We just understand at some point we're going to tap out and say, I can't, I can't go any further than that. Uh, the third thing uh, that, that we understand sort of in the big historical overview is that people get this wrong, I would almost argue, more often than they get it right. So there's lots of ways to think incorrectly about the Trinity. Two particularly common mistakes. One is called modalism. And modalism is the idea that God exists as one God in three forms. So I am, at the same time, a son. I was home visiting my mom last weekend. I am a son. I am a husband. I'm married to Sherry. I am a father. We have three boys. So I am one person in three roles. And I can, in one sense, fulfill those three roles all at the same time. But they're just different modes. Okay, some people explain the Trinity this way. This is a really bad way to think about it. Okay, it's called modalism, and it's, it's, 
it's not true. So I've got a, a one-minute comical video that we're going to play. You just have to understand before they run it that um, it, it references St. Patrick. So St. Patrick is a real person. He was not, by the way, Irish. Sorry for all of you who are Irish. St. Patrick was British. He was uh, in the fourth century, so back three, you know, in the 300s, he was the son of a very wealthy, prominent family, and he was kidnapped off of, from Britain and taken as a slave to Ireland. He was a slave there working as a shepherd for seven years. He comes to faith in Christ. And he has a vision, not long after that, that he could escape. And so he escapes and he goes back to his family. And he's there and he sort of gets back with them. And then he has another vision, and that is that he's to go back to Ireland as a missionary and to tell the Irish about Christ. And so he does. And he spends the rest of his life there and he becomes a bishop uh, uh, in the church. Um, So uh, he's a prominent, important historical figure. And uh, this video sort of captures a little description of how modalism doesn't work. It's one minute long. Let's play it. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple. Okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! (laughs) Yeah, the Internet's an interesting place. So, um... Modalism is one mistake that people make. A second common mistake is called Arianism, and it was advocated by lots of people, but most prominently by Arius, uh, who was a very dynamic, charismatic teacher uh, back in North Africa in the third century, um, uh, fourth century, third century, back in there, and, and he gets in trouble when Alexander, who was the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, so Alexander says, I've got, the, he issues sort of an SOS to a bunch of people to say, I've got problems with this very popular person who is saying, the essence of Arianism, that Jesus is not fully God. God the Father is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's very much, he's God-like. He's, he's amazing, but he's not fully God, and he's not co-eternal with the Father. So, um, there's a lot that we could learn by delving deeper into this. Let's move on from history for a second, and I want to just mention the creeds, because one of the other ways we can learn about the Trinity is to look at the creeds, which come about for two reasons. 
The first is to summarize the most important information to know. So I have been a Christian for approaching 40 years. So I've been studying the Bible for 40 years. I continue to learn lots of things. But the basics need to come quickly. Like it's not all equally important. It might all be true, but it's not all equally important. What is the most important things? So the Apostles' Creed gives us the heart of the faith. And uh, it, it is what people that were going to be baptized needed to affirm. And there is a Trinitarian statement in the Apostles' Creed. We're going to say it later on in the service, but it says, I believe in God the Father, uh, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. I believe in the Spirit of God. Right? There's a Trinitarian statement in the Apostles' Creed. So one of the reasons we get creeds is to help us understand what's most important. A second reason we get creeds is to keep us from going into mistakes that's more defensive. And that's where we get the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed was formulated to stop Arianism. So uh, Constantine becomes the emperor of the Roman Empire. He issues this edict of toleration and says it's no longer illegal to be a Christian. And he gathers all the bishops together at his summer home in Nicaea. So he is building his capital city, Constantinople, which today is Istanbul. He's, he's building Istanbul. It's not built, so he invites everybody to his home, his summer home in Nicaea. I've been to Nicaea. It's a, at this point, it's sort of a, it's a sign next to a gas station on the side of the road in Turkey. And, but, he, but it was more than, and he invites everybody back there, and they get together because Alexander says, I need help stopping this Arius guy. He's very dynamic. He's, he's putting words to songs. Everybody's singing them, but he's saying Jesus isn't God, and I can't stop him. So the bishops all get together, and they listen to what uh, Arius is saying, and quickly, and so if you read Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and everything else, he says something very different. He's wrong. Uh, very quickly they say, that is heresy. And the vote wasn't close. It was 308 to 2, where they said, no, that's not what, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. Then they spent months trying to formulate how to actually talk about God's nature. And what they end up giving us, for the most part, is what we can't say. <laughs> so it's defensive. It's saying, don't say this, don't say this, don't say this. You know, we can say this, but don't say too much else. And so we get creeds that way. We also get um, other things. So I mentioned that, that Arius used to put together little jingles that people could sing because most people were illiterate. And so he was communicating his ideas through songs. So last week I was visiting my mom. There's five kids. I'm the oldest of five. Uh, four of us were able to make it back. And on Sunday morning we went to church together because that's sort of show-and-tell time in this retirement community where my mom exists. And so we all stand up and we get introduced. And, and you know, it's a, a little embarrassing um, and there's a there's a interesting moment when my mom cannot remember the name of one of her children, not me. Uh, I'm sure it'll come up at Christmas again. Uh, my sister scarred by that, but anyway, we're introduced, 
And we're at the church service, and almost right after we're introduced, they go into the Gloria Patri, right? So it's a sort of soft, contemplative glory be to the Father and to the Son, right? Some of you know it, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. So I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, (laughs) this is really a fight song, and you're singing it uh, in a completely different tone. But this is what this is what the Christians came up with to try and counteract Arian, uh, Arius and all of their ideas to jingles. Glory be to the Father and to the Son. Right? It's not just the Father that is God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, there was never a moment that Jesus wasn't God. There was never a moment. As it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, we have one God and three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we can look to history. We can look to the creeds. We can also look to art. So uh, I have a, an image here. This is, a, this is a, an icon from the Russian Orthodox Church, 15th century. It's called the Trinity. It was painted uh, by Andrei Rublev. Uh, we don't use, the, the Western church doesn't use icons. They think that they're a little bit too much like idols. But in icons, uh, you don't have any effort ever to figuratively uh, give a picture of God. Right? That would be violation of the second commandment, no graven images. But in this icon, a famous icon of the Trinity, you have a statement about the Trinity that is, that is captured by the three people who meet Abraham in Genesis 18 at the Oak of Mamre. So there's three people. I've, I've argued that Jesus is one of them in his pre-incarnate state, but they come to meet Abraham. This is before uh, Isaac has been born. This is when they're telling that Isaac is he's going to have a son. And these three are portrayed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the one on the left is... Uh, the, the, it's faded, that robe was purple, and that's the father in the middle uh, with both the red and the blue robe is, is Jesus with his two natures, fully God, fully man, captured in the two different colors. The Spirit of God is on the right in the, in the green. Green's the color of life. The Spirit of God brings life and brings forward progress. The oak tree in the back is both the oak of memory and it's sort of symbolic of the cross that Jesus Christ is going to die on. So they're in a perfect circle and in iconographic symbolism that represents eternality and equality. So there's, we could learn some things reflecting on art and understanding history and historic understandings of, of God's nature. Uh, additionally, we could look at philosophy. Now, philosophy for the most part, and you can take the, the image down, philosophy for the most part, uh, can philosophy often gets heady and is not helpful. But there, there is some remarkably helpful, almost devotional writings by theologian philosophers from the past that, that look to Scripture and further unpack some of the implications of what we see in Scripture. So, for instance, we, we know from 1 John 4 that God is love. And we know from John 17 
that God is one. We, we listen in in John 17. It's the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. We get to listen in on the conversation between the Father and the Son. And, uh, and then there's this word, uh, Hebrew word, yazak, that is used to describe God in various books in the Old Testament. And it refers, often translated for rejoicing. But, it, but it's also the word for laughter and for joy. And, uh, and so you, you listen to people put this together. And they say, look, God is and always has been the most joyful being in the universe. He has eternally existed in the perfect friendship of himself, the perfect, loving community of himself. And the relationship, when we see the only time we hear God the Father speak audibly in the New Testament, it is to say, this is my son whom I love. Right. And, and the son, when he talks about the father, it's always to defer to the father. Not my will, but your will be done. And the spirit is always, is always pointing to the father and to the son. Right? It is a perfect relationship. And God has always existed in a perfect relationship of love. And, and not just love, but, but, but joy and laughter. So some, C.S. Lewis and others, will write about the dance, the eternal dance that goes on in the Trinity. Because neither, not any of the, of the members of the, of the Trinity wants to be the center of attention. And so the other two are rotating around them, but at the same time, then, then they're rotating around each other. And so it's this eternal dance that goes on. You, you, can, you can get a little bit of a, of a glimpse behind the scenes by meditating and reflecting on what Scripture is telling us about this perfect loving relationship. And there's at least two things about this idea that, that, that God has existed in a loving relationship forever that are important to note. One, we're not necessary in a bad way. So if God is an eternal being, one God, one person, and he's love, who does he love? I mean, you'd say, well, he loves himself, but that's not generally a good thing. Or you could say, well, he created us because he needs somebody to love. That actually can get a little spooky, right? When somebody needs somebody to love and to dote on, right? But that's, that's not the image we get at all. What we get is not that God needs us, but that there is a perfectly fulfilling, joyful laughter, dance that we get invited into, <laughs> right? It's the overflow of love that we get invited into. God does not need us. God doesn't need anything. God is perfect. We get invited into that relationship. It also means that the first thing that exists besides God is not power, it's not creation, it's love. So, we could, we could, you could spend some time reflecting on what the triune nature of God means and how that shapes us. Here's another one, by the way. We were made in the image of a God who has always been in relationship. We were created in the image of a God who has always been in relationship. We were created for relationships. 
I'm not saying that you can't be alone ever. I've said, look, I, if I don't get solitude, I seek isolation. I mean, there's, there's, there's alone time that we need. But we were made for relationships. Adam in, in, Genesis, 3, in Genesis 1 will be lonely. He's not lonely because he's sinful and imperfect. No, he's still perfect, but he's lonely because he was created to be in relationship. We are created to be in relationship. We are created in the image of a God who has always been in community. So there's, there's stuff to be gained by sort of the extrapolation of the mix of theology and philosophy. I, I want to come to the communion table here with, with this big idea that, that emerges out of Scripture, the book of Romans and other places, that, that the only way the gospel could happen is if there is one God in three persons. The only way we get a perfectly holy, righteous, just God and mercy and love that is perfect is if there is one God in three persons. So, when a judge is merciful... We generally don't like it unless the mercy is being extended to us. When we hear that, a, that a, a murderer or a rapist is being let go because the judge wants to be merciful, we say, no, that judge was bought off, right? That's not justice. That's not justice. We need justice. Wrong was done. Somebody needs to pay. Okay. Well, God is perfectly holy, and he's perfectly loving and merciful. How do you put those together? He says, I'll pay. I am going to remain perfectly holy, and yet I will pay. I will be perfectly loving and merciful. I will extend grace. And that happens in this interplay between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The gospel unfolds to us as as, as the Father sends the Son, and we are, we are called into that through the Spirit of God. We are going to end this service um, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And 700 years before Christ is born, Isaiah is called up into heaven, and he reports this in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe and filled the temple. And he was surrounded by angels, by, seraphim, by seraphim. And, and they had six wings, and with two they covered their eyes, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All of creation celebrates his glory. So this holy, holy, holy repetition is, is sort of, it's, it's Trinitarian in one sense. We call it the Trisagion. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4. So now, 800 years later, Isaiah is 700 years before Christ. John is writing the, the vision that he gets when he's banished on the island of Patmos. He's writing the book of Revelation, and, he's, and he says, I see heaven. I get called up into heaven. And I see these angels, and they are singing around the throne, holy, holy, holy. I mean, the implication is that for the last thousand years, 
the angels have been saying, holy, holy, holy. And when you go to Revelation chapter 5, you see that this holiness is being directed at God the Father, but it's about to be directed at God the Son when the, when the Lamb of God is elevated. So, we, we, so there's all of this plays off of this holy, holy, holy that is Trinitarian, and this hymn was written, and it's, it's a wonderful hymn. It's a Trinitarian hymn that is going to, you know, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, we're going to celebrate the, uh, all the earth declares thy name. And there is a God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's a, it was written in the 19th century. There's a great part in there that, that suggests that God is merciful and mighty, right? That he's holy and loving. The, the, this Trinitarian formula gets explained. There's another passage in there where he says, Though the darkness hide thee, I can't completely understand who you are. There's a mystery there that I just can't get behind. Though the darkness hide my full understanding of your nature. And then uh, we, we have this, uh, this opportunity to add our voices to the angels that are singing holy, holy, holy right now. Right? We don't get told that we should praise God. There's nothing, it's just, we just start adding our voices to what's going on with the angels singing the, the holiness of the triune God, one God in three persons. So, uh, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go to communion, and coming out of communion, we're going into that hymn. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, for the gospel, for sending your Son, <clears throat> Lord Jesus. Thank you that you accepted that assignment, that you accepted the assignment to set aside the glory and honor and rights and privileges that were yours, uh, to add manhood to godhood, to add humanity to deity, and to come live among us and to die in our place. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for dying in our place. Spirit of God, we ask that you would enliven our hearts. We ask that you would give us a love for the Son that the Father has. We pray that you would you would draw us to yourself, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.